Shining the spotlight on the future of hockey. Hey, it's Ty Smith of the Spokane Chiefs. It's Adam Bocas. Hey, it's Joe Valeno from the Drummondville Voltageurs. Hey, it's Quinn Hughes from the University of Michigan. Hi, I'm Dominic Fox. I'm Jacob Bernard Docker of the Oak Hills Oilers. It's Joe O'Brien. Hi, it's Barrett Hayden of the Sioux Greyhounds. Brady Kachuk from the Boston University Terriers. Major Junior. In the 100th year of the Memorial Cup, the Ankeny Panthers T-Tall have won it for the first time. NCAA. Everybody in that Bulldog section's on their feet. The bench is ready to party as the UMD Bulldogs are back-to-back national champions. The World Juniors. Time winding down, and Finland has won the World Junior Championship in Vancouver in spectacular style. The NHL Draft. The Buffalo Sabres are proud to select Trollunda defenseman Rasmus Dahlin. And more. Oh, yes! Oh, my goodness. We're not going home yet, baby! This is the Pipeline Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. My name is Guy Flaming, so that means I'm in the right place, and I'm glad that you've uh, taken the time to download this particular episode as well. Maybe you're a subscriber and you get all the episodes. That's fantastic. If you're new to the show, then I hope you'll enjoy this episode, and it might encourage you to subscribe as well. It's free to subscribe. Uh, those who uh, sign up to be patrons at patreon.com slash show, well, they get some bonuses like early access to uh, what the interviews you're going to hear on today's episode. Some of them have been available uh, for uh, two or three days. Uh, one of them I actually just did about an hour ago, so that one uh, was not available with early access. But um, on an ongoing, regular basis, patrons get to hear the, uh, the, the interviews on the show. Uh, for a few days before the actual show is released uh, on iTunes or SoundCloud or Google Play or the podcast app, wherever you get your podcast from, there are advantages to being a patron. I encourage all of you to uh, check that out and see if it's fit for you at patreon.com slash the pipeline show. As always, we start with the question of the week. I posted that on uh, Twitter earlier today and a pretty simple question, but lots of really good uh, feedback already on this one. Question is, if there was one thing that you could change, add, or remove from the Canadian Hockey League, what would it be and why? And uh, here's some of the uh, feedback uh, that I've gotten so far. Patrick started off a really good uh, conversation with uh, his tweet that said, their agreement with the NHL. I asked him to expand on that a little bit and uh, let me know what exactly he was talking about. And he, uh, he did so. He says, I feel that it's bad for the development of top-end players and hinders their growth. I believe players should have more freedom to play where they want and make money if they're over 18 and choose to do so. Uh, And that has created a a pretty good conversation between two or three people. You can get involved in that. Look up my uh, Twitter uh, feed. That's at TPS underscore Gee. L. Boob Hubbard has uh, chimed in. He's uh, suggested that I would change the max age from 20 to 21. Right now it's it's, you're done after your uh, 20-year-old season. He says it would push a bunch of 16- and 17-year-olds back into midget, thereby increasing the competition and developmental aspects of that level. And it would also shift the developmental window for kids in the CHL moving forward. Now, I'm not saying that he's wrong, uh, but I'm not sure that I'm uh, on board with his idea. He He goes on to say moving that window forward would hopefully increase the chances for CHL players to pan out at the next level. More 19- and 20-year-olds would also likely increase the level of competition. Plus, the NHL is already starting to show more of a willingness to draft overage players. Uh, That part I do agree with, but 
uh, I still think with the number of players you're seeing uh, playing in the uh, National Hockey League at uh, 19 and 20 years old, uh, it's become a younger league. I'm not necessarily sure that uh, uh, we would see the benefits that El Boob Hubbard is uh, talking about. Uh, Veritas Hockey, I'm not sure who from Veritas uh, is actually uh, submitting the question, whether it's Tom Lynn or Jamie Dial or, or Kyle Kozier. Uh, but uh, they replied by saying uh, they would. They replied by saying the league office banning teams from giving the players benefits. I replied, uh, asking if they could uh, uh, kind of spe- specify what they were talking about there in terms of player benefits, and they did. Their list includes reimbursement of travel expenses, tra- uh, training expenses, ancillary medical care not currently covered, like chiropractors and therapeutic massage. Uh, education packages that teams want to give, like four years for signing and, and full coverage, and possibly a small portion of the uh, league revenues. Uh, and I replied to him asking, uh, I, I said, well, it's a solid list, uh, well worth talking about. And, and out of curiosity, as that this is an agency, uh, wondering how many teams or, or, or how much of the list of uh, benefits that he uh, put forth there how many of those are covered currently by uh, leagues like the USHL or the North American Hockey League? And if it's if this would be something that those leagues aren't covering either. And, and obviously things like uh, medical care would be different for the U.S. teams compared to the Canadian teams. Because uh, Canadian teams, obviously, with uh, universal health care, that would be a lot different. I At least that's my assumption. Uh, the education package part of that, uh, giving four years for signing and full coverage, I'm not. Sh- I think that would open the door to uh, problems where a guy would get be promised his a full scholastic package and maybe only play two years and not actually go to school. And you know, when do you pay that? When don't you pay it? Um, I think that could open the door to you, know, you, you pay a guy up front. And could all teams do that? Should all teams do that? I, I kind of like the system now where you get a year for what for each year that you played. To me, that makes more sense. Uh, but that's it's a worthy conversation for sure. Stosh says, lighten the schedule a little. More time for skill development and practice, more time for workouts and recovery, and more time for personal time, which is good for mental health. I think all of those are valid uh, things that Stosh has uh, put out there. The, and because we're talking about the Canadian Hockey League, let's look at all three leagues. The, the time on the bus, the travel, and all of that, a lot less extensive in the OHL compared to certainly the Q and definitely uh, the Western Hockey League. It would be nice if there was more uh, downtime and less bus time in the WHL, and uh, they they did shorten the schedule from 72 games to 68. I don't know how much that has actually lessened the travel time for teams. But yes, I think if there was a way to lighten the the travel schedule, uh, that would be a good thing. The only thing I can think of to do that in the WHL, though, would be no interconference play, and, and that's something I've talked about at length uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, but you can let me know how you feel about that. Joe says, I'd add a Canadian U-17 team that would play games in all three major junior leagues and be our team at the Holinka gretzky Cup. He says, I love the U.S. hockey model in the USHL with the U-18 and U-17 teams. And that is something that I would like to talk about a little bit more uh, in uh, this month of uh, July coming up. I've talked to some people who don't think it's possible. I, I I don't know why it wouldn't be possible to have a Canadian national team development program like the U.S. national team development program where you have a, a dedicated U-17 team that then graduates to be the dedicated U-18 squad. 
I personally would not make it out of uh, CHL players. It would for me, it would be players who are still intending at least to, on uh, maintaining their NCAA eligibility. So over the years, I'm talking about players like uh, like Shane Bowers recently, and um, you know goaltender like Colton Point, um, guys like Kale McCarr. Uh, Jaden Schwartz when he was playing junior hockey, you know, guys out of the BCHL, the AJHL, the 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 OJHL, the CCHL, you know, all the junior A leagues across Canada. It would to me, it would be make more sense to take the twenty players, the top twenty players uh, from those three, those ten leagues rather, uh, as opposed to the CHL. I would base it in Calgary, have them play the U17s would play uh, much like the USHL. So the the U18 team would play all the like the Holinka Gretzky Cup and uh, all the international events. Uh, the uh, U-17 team would play the HHL schedule or BCHL schedule, if you prefer. I, I would probably go AJ if you're going to base it in Calgary. Um, but the U-18s would play a third of their schedule in the AJHL. Uh, a third, I would try to set up uh, exhibition games with NCAA teams. And uh, then a third of their schedule would be the international component, just like the U.S. national development team does. To me, I, I don't know why that isn't feasible. Uh, maybe it's just the hockey cannon machine. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll have to get to Tom Rennie on the show and, and uh, put that to him and, and see what he has to say about that. Dustin says, I'd change the rules with the NHL drafting process. Three-year window to sign, but at a signing window of April 1st, August 15th, to sign prospects, and once signed, they turn pro. Uh, so I'm guessing then Dustin would say like an 18-year-old that you draft and you sign, he immediately goes to the American Hockey League, wouldn't play in the CHL anymore. I'd have to uh, check with Dustin to see if that's what uh, he was getting at. Steve-O says, uh, move the WHL draft back to 16 just so I can see the kids play immediately. And uh, he also liked the gift that I used. Um, but I couldn't agree uh, any more than I already do with Steve-O. I think the WHL draft should be 16. And Mike added to that as well. He said, WHL drafts at 15 and it doesn't seem to work. It's not even fan-friendly as you draft a guy that can't even play for you uh, the next season. Get all hyped up over a guy that won't even be in your lineup for over a year. And uh, that is the number one reason for me. Or maybe number two, I think number one would be that uh, it's a lot easier to draft successfully when you're drafting 16-year-olds than when you're drafting 15-year-olds. Jess Rubenstein, who uh, writes... For Blue Shirt Bulletin, uh, covering New York Rangers uh, prospects, uh, he's said uh, the one thing he would change would be fighting. There's no need for teenagers to be fighting in the Canadian Hockey League. Too many are paying the price with their health, both now and down the road. Really, can anyone give a valid reason as to why teens are fighting in the CHL? Everyone else is banning fighting. It's time for the CHL to get rid of it. And I actually agree with Jess. I'm, I, it used to be for me that it's it's just part of the game. Nobody is actually forcing these guys to fight, at least. I mean, every once in a while you hear a story about how a coach has told a kid to go out and fight. That should be absolutely uh, prohibited and should not be part of the game. But I think just in general, fight, there's no real need that there, I don't think there has to be fighting. We see it at other levels of the, the game, certainly the college level, the, the CIS level, there's there's uh, or the U sport level. There's not a lot of fighting. I mean, there are pushing and shoving, and every once in a while you'll punch a guy in the cage. Um, but then the refs jump in, and it's all sorted out. And, you know, if 
maybe you allow fighting, but I think suspensions, uh, you know, automatic one game suspension or something like that to, to curtail it. I don't think it needs to be there. Jess went on to say uh, five years ago, we would have said nobody gets hurt in a hockey fight, but now we are finding out we were wrong. Kids are retiring from hockey at 16 and 17 and, and fighting is partly the blame. And I think that's right. I think we have to be, we have to evolve with the science and the science is telling us that fighting bad. Eric says, I'd like to see the NCAA change the rules so that a player from a CHL team could still play in college after their eligibility is over without penalty, as long as they haven't signed a pro contract. And and I don't disagree with that at all. Uh, but I think the NCAA, I don't know that you'll ever see the NCAA change that. But I would agree. I mean, uh, th- there are guys who, I mean, will go on and play college hockey and youth sport and use their their CHL scholarship, and that's why it's there. And I think that's the the way a player should go. There will be like some Americans, though, American players who got who play in the CHL. Maybe they'll end up going to the ECHL instead. You know, not play university sport in Canada. But if they had the option to go play NCAA, I think they would. And I think that option should be there for them. So I would like to see that change as well, Eric. But that's an NCAA thing, and I don't know that that will ever happen. Uh, Dean Millard, my uh, former co-host here on the Pipeline Show, he weighed in on the whole fighting thing. He said, I, st- I still think it has a role. You're preparing players for the next level. When it's no longer at the pro level, then fine. Get it from get it out of uh, junior hockey. And, and uh, I can see that perspective as well. Uh, Jamie says, I'd like to see a CHL versus NCAA All-Star game. And 15 years ago, I would have agreed with that. But, uh, you know, I've come to, over time, and my exposure to uh, to both levels um it it just wouldn't make sense you're you're you'd be seeing it at the ncaa team should win that game every year i mean you would have a team basically of 20 to 23 year olds playing a team of 17 to 19 year olds and you would expect the the older team the more experienced and physically mature team to win that game every time so i don't think you'll ever see that either Jackie uh, suggests at least allow 19-year-old first-round picks to play in the American Hockey League. Many are held in NHL or go on AHL conditioning anyway. And that's that's been a, a topic of discussion for a number of years. Could you have a rule where it's, you know, an exceptional status almost for the American Hockey League? Because there are players who you look, it's not often, but a guy like Cody Glass, I think, he was too good for the, for the WHL this year. It, it wasn't hurting him by keeping him in the league. I don't think he get worse, but maybe there w- it would have been better for development, for his development, for the Las Vegas Golden Knights to have him in the, in the American Hockey League. I think you can make that that argument for a very few amount of players. I would do it on a limited case. Maybe every three, like an NHL team has a window, one guy every three years. So if uh, you do it with a guy this year, you can't do it again for another prospect for three more years. Um, just because I, I don't think it's all that widespread a case where uh, you could do that with a prospect but yeah for uh, there are limited times where it makes sense to me so i would i would make it an a, a possibility but not something that could be over abused t-bird tidbits a, uh, a fan blog for the seattle thunderbirds says i'll go whl specific and change to a more balanced schedule even if it's just inside the divisions uh, seattle by u.s division opponent they play portland 12 times Everett 10 times, Spokane 7 times, and Tri-City 7 times. That means they, they play Portland, the Portland Winterhawks, 12 times, whereas they play Spokane and Tri-Cities 
14 times combined. Uh, it is a rather weird scheduling in the U.S. division. So lots of good feedback there if you want to get involved, and uh, I think it, you should. That would be great to have uh, more voices in the conversation. You can find me on Twitter at TPS underscore Guy. Let's get to some other uh, news and notes. Some disturbing uh, information coming out of out of Russia uh, with... It was on Sport Express uh, interview between Evgeny Belisov, a reporter, and uh, Yaroslav Alexiev, who played a couple of years, two, uh, two or three years, in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. Played for a couple of different teams, but uh, in his experiences, in this interview, he's talking about his experiences as a rookie in the queue with the uh, Sherbrooke Phoenix and uh, just classic hazing that is. I mean, it's just, it's horrible, and it should not be a part of uh, sport anywhere, let alone uh, in the uh, Canadian Hockey League. It's the stuff you used to hear about, like in the 80s and the 90s, and I, I know even uh, there were some stories about some incidents in the in the OHL uh, in the early 2000s as well. This crap cannot go on anymore, and it really needs to be out of the game, and I'm, I'm hoping an investigation is... Uh, underway if not already then uh, soon and that uh, any guilty parties I, mean, I don't know what the penalties should be but they should be severe enough that that it's a deterrent from it ever happening again i mean you've heard, heard about uh, horrible hazing incidents uh, not just in hockey but in other sports and in not just in canada but in the states and, and wherever else and uh, it just can't go on i mean it's it's ridiculous so really tough to hear because it paints a black eye on uh, hockey uh, in general and the Canadian Hockey League in this case. And I know I, I reached out to uh, somebody with the Edmonton Oil Kings, a player, and uh, I won't say who it is because I didn't get his permission to say, but I asked him, I said, please just tell me this stuff does not go on uh, out here. And he said, nah, not even close. Like the, the It's been hammered into them from the organization that uh, that kind of crap does not fly at all. Um, so I was glad to hear that. And maybe I'll uh, reach out and get uh, some more reaction from players or people in uh, team management or league management uh, about uh, hazing in general and, and uh, what can be done to make sure that that does not happen anymore. The Holinka Gretzky Cup uh, camp uh, rosters have been named for uh, both Canada and the U.S. Uh, lots of players of note uh, for both teams. I would recommend you go to Hockey Canada's website and uh, USA Hockey's uh, website and uh, check those out. Uh, I'm not going to go through the rosters right now because uh, this has already turned into a pretty long opening segment. And the quite honestly, there's uh, a long list of players worth talking about on both teams, shaping up to be a pretty good squad here for both Canada and the United States. I will be interested to see what Canada's goaltending looks like at the 2020 World Junior Championship. Uh, that'll be in Prague. I'll, I'll tell you the five goaltenders who are invited, no WHLer, three guys out of the queue, Colton Ellis, Zach Emmon, and uh, Olivier Rodrigue, uh, actually four goalies. I missed Alexi Gravel. Uh, he's also uh, amongst the five goalies. Hunter Jones, the only one from the OHL with the Peterborough Peets. No WHL goalie at all invited right now. So you don't usually see five goalies invited either. So that's a little bit different twist on things here for, for Hockey Canada. Uh, in By comparison, the U.S. camp roster actually does have a WHL goaltender invited. That's uh, Dustin Wolf of the Everett Silvertips. Drafted by the Calgary Flames in the seventh round. Uh, the other three, Spencer Knight, I think, who everyone will expect to be uh, the starter for that club. Uh, Isaiah Seville, who played in the USHL with the Tri-City Storm. And Drew DeRitter, who 
is the oldest of the uh, four participants, also the shortest, listed at just five foot ten. So those are the four goalies for the United States. Canada has also uh, unveiled the Holinka Gretzky Cup camp roster and uh, the U17 participants as well. So you can find all of that at HockeyCanada.ca. CHL import draft going uh, about uh, a week ago now, and uh, a lot of players uh, added uh, to the Canadian Hockey League. Uh, a lot of teams only made one choice, though. Of the choices, uh, there were six goaltenders who were drafted, and if you're perhaps you'd forgot that the European goaltenders back involved in the import draft that was added in in time for the 2018 CHL import draft. Think of Mad Sogard uh, playing in Medicine Hat. Well, six goalies were taken this year. Uh, the Barry Colts took the first one at, with uh, Arthur Silovs, who I believe is a Vancouver Canucks draft pick. So we'll see if uh, if he reports to Barry or not. Only one team in the queue took a goaltender. That's uh, Samuel Hlavage, who played in the USHL last year and uh, haven't heard yet if he's actually going to report to Sherbrooke or not. Interesting one, uh, interesting choice by the Sudbury Wolves to add Frederick. Could be Dickow, could be Dichow, could be, uh, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but uh, a Danish goaltender, six foot five Danish goaltender who was drafted by the Montreal Canadiens. So the Sudbury Wolves adding a another import goaltender to headed to the WHL. The Spokane Chiefs add Lucas Parrick, who was uh, drafted by the LA Kings. And a real interesting one here, Moosejaw uh, taking Jesper Wallstead, who uh, could be a pretty one of the first goaltenders taken in the 2020 NHL draft. Swedish goaltender we saw play a couple of games at the Holinka Gretzky Cup in Edmonton in August of uh, 2019. Elite Prospects has a good rundown and a recap of the CHL import draft, so you can check all that out uh, there. I'll tell you what's uh, coming down the pipe here in a second for uh, today's show, but before I do, just a couple of, usually uh, during the uh, sponsored segments, I'll, I, I, I do this, but uh, because there isn't a WHL guest today, I'll remind you that you can stay up to date on everything happening in the Western Hockey League by going to dubnetwork.ca. You can also uh, do the same with uh, OHL Network now as well, as uh, the guys at Dub Network have expanded to covering the Ontario Hockey League. And there has been lots to talk about when it comes to uh, the WHL here over the last couple of weeks. All right, let's get to what's coming down the pipe today. Now, it is the off season, and uh, we changed things up for July because we've been so draft focused over the last a month and a half. And quite honestly, for you know, from September to June, there is usually draft content on every show, or at least on most episodes. But now that we are uh, officially into the off season, which is July, uh, we changed things up a little bit. So there won't be a draft spotlight segment uh, for the next month or so. So what I thought we would do this year is uh, maybe get to know the leagues a little bit more. And uh, so I'm going to reach out. I, I have already booked a few of the, uh, the respective league commissioners or presidents uh, to come on the show. And uh, we're going to start that off today. The commissioner of the CCHL, it's one of 10 junior A leagues in Canada. The commissioner is uh, Kevin Abrams, also happens to be the chairman of the CJHL, which is the umbrella organization that covers all 10 of the CJHL leagues. So he oversees the BCHL, the AJHL, and the CCHL and across the country all the way to the Maritimes. So we'll talk to him about uh, his league, uh, but also overseeing all 10 uh, leagues and uh, what's happening 
with the CJHL and what sort of you know offseason uh, agenda there is for the league. Also talk to him about several hot-button topics uh, and get his opinion on some of them as well. So that will uh, be our first guest, Kevin Abrams, coming up. And that's a lengthy conversation, but one I think is worth having for sure. And I've already confirmed a conversation's uh, interviews coming up uh, later in July with both Ron Robison of the WHL and uh, Gilles Courteau of the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. I've reached out to both the USHL and the uh, Ontario Hockey League as well. And uh, plan on doing the same with the uh, North American Hockey League. So we'll get to know those leagues a little bit more intimately throughout July. Only one other guest that we're going to hear from uh, on the, this week's episode, Jimmy Connolly from USCHO, is going to join us. Some big news uh, coming out of the, the NCAA hockey circles here in the uh, later stages of this week. With uh, seven teams backing out of the WCHA and, uh, again, the college hockey conference landscape will be undergoing a massive change over the next two or three seasons. So Jimmy is going to join us and update us on that. So uh, two guests, we're going to start it off with Kevin Abrams, the uh, commissioner of the CCHL and the chairman of the Canadian Junior Hockey League. That's up first here on the Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. McLaughlin top the right circle, goal line right, pass through the middle, and a good save by Colton Point and a beauty Man, oh man, what a save by Colton. Hi, it's Colton Point from the Colgate Raiders, and you're listening to the Pipeline Show. Benning to the middle, Mitchell grabs it, walks in on the back end, shoots, and scores! These Spruce Grove Saints are excited to unveil their first ever hockey school. Taking place August 19th to 23rd right here at the Grant Fear Arena. Brought to you by Subway and Humpty's Restaurants of Spruce Grove. This one-week hockey school includes over 10 hours of on- and off-ice instruction from Saints coaching staff and current Saints players. Each camp participant will receive a camp jersey and a t-shirt to keep and have one on-ice and one off-ice session per day. Each day will have a specific focus to enhance the skating, shooting, and puck handling skills of each player. Both boys and girls of all levels of all experience are encouraged to come out and take part. To cap off the week, each group will have a Subway sub-party with the Saints coaches up in the lounge. Visit www.sprucegrovesaints.ca to sign up for the Hockey School now. Click on the Hockey School tab on the right side of the page. You're listening to the Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. Well, freaking God! Welcome back to the Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. We're going to kick off uh, this episode this week with our uh, what we what is usually the CHL Insider segment today, the CJHL Insider segment, brought to you by the store next door out in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, employing people with disabilities, turning your broken hockey sticks into some really cool products. I recommend you check out the store next door. Dot .ca and my guest today is the commissioner of the CCHL and uh, also the uh, chairman of the CJHL his name is Kevin Abrams Kevin welcome to the pipeline show how are you today I'm well thank you well I appreciate you making the time here in the off season to, to speak with us and uh what I wanted to do is is pick your brain a little bit about your league and and your role for both the CCHL and the CJHL and uh, for my audience that's across North America there might be some who aren't as familiar 
uh, with uh, Junior A in Canada. So maybe uh, give me the basics about about your league and, and uh, the 12 teams in and, and sort of the background of uh, where you're coming from. Sure. Our league, uh, uh, the Central Canada Hockey League, previously was the Central Junior Hockey League, uh, was founded uh, back in 1961, which makes us you know, the longest-running league among the 10 in Canada. Um, it was founded back in 61 by the Montreal Canadiens and Sam Pollock, who, uh, who uh, was looking for a place to house the non-Quebec prospects that they had for the Canadians up until uh, that time and, and then continued that until 1969 when the first uh, NHL draft came about. But as a result of the history and the, the long tenure as a league, you know, some of our, our franchises are relatively well known. Um, you know, places like the Pembroke Lumber Kings, the Brockville Braves, the Hawksbury Hawks, uh, Smith Falls Bears, um, were original franchises back in 61. And uh, we've since added more and, and we've uh, been at 12 teams now for a little over a decade. Um, and uh, that seems to be the number that fits us well. We, uh, we're located in eastern Ontario, we're right along the Quebec border. Uh, the U.S. border, so we, we have a very small geographical footprint in terms of the distance between teams, which is actually one of the positives in our league in terms of travel. There's not much of it, mm-hmm. um, but uh, we have, we have a, a history of player development, and I think that started back in '61, and it's continued today. This uh, you know, straight through with various incarnations of that, but primarily we send players on to um, the NCAA and the, and the Canadian Hockey League. And, Ultimately, a lot of them end up playing professionally in the National Hockey League. So we've got a, uh, some some fairly illustrious alumni, and, and we'll cut it up. And we're also proud of the fact that we're an important stepping stone for players that are looking to move on to, to bigger and better things. You, you mentioned the small footprint, and that, that's really unique. I mean, you have some of the leagues in the in the CJHL are entire provinces, and obviously that is different in the in Ontario. It, it, um, you mentioned the it's a cost saver. Obviously, it's not nearly as expensive to to travel within your league as uh, some of the others. Are there any disadvantages to to being that small to having that small of a footprint? Well, I, I don't think there are. I think if you look at you know the player experience, you know there's no school days missed at all. There's no overnight trips. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's perhaps a thought that it's it's good times. You know to the team building on buses, but we, you know, we have a little bit of that, you know, from Hawkesbury at the east to Pembroke in the west. It's a little over three hours. So the average road trip in our league is, is less than an hour long. Wow. Um, so, so there's really, I mean, there, there are cases where two or three times a year the guys are on the bus for a couple of hours, but, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a rarity. And I think, uh, what we try to make sure people understand is that, you know, it allows us to play a, a fuller schedule of games. We play 62. And, uh, it certainly allows lots of practice time and, and, you know, being home in your own bed every night, uh, makes, uh, makes your performance academically pretty strong too. So we think there's, there's far more benefits than, than, than sort of short, shortcomings or, or drawbacks, that's for sure. Uh, I know in the BCHL and the AGHL, there's a, a lot of players from outside of those provinces. Uh, the, the players that come and play in the CCHL, are they mostly from that area or do you get a lot of, uh, players from across Canada and, and even in the States as well? Um, about, uh, like our, our branch, our region, uh, is the same size in terms of player registrations as the province of Saskatchewan. So I'd say about 50% of the players from our region or our branch, okay. uh, about 80 to 85% are from the province of Ontario. And then we have, you know, some natural, uh, alignment with kids from Quebec and, and from upstate, uh, yeah, 
in the USA, you know, those are, those would be the, the, the you know, sort of the next, the next areas of, of player recruitment. But Ontario is certainly the primary focus. I, I would say three of, you know, probably three out of every four players, uh, on most rosters comes from Ontario. Kevin Abrams is the uh, commissioner of the CCHL, my guest here on the Pipeline Show. Uh, how long have you been commissioner now? What was it, 2006, something like that? Yeah, I'm going into year 14, which uh, makes me number two in the elder statesman category. So that's, <laughs> that's uh, it's, I, I guess it's, it's good. I mean, I, I see lots of good, good young minds coming into this, these positions across Canada, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's, uh, it's exciting to be part of it. Sometimes you view this someone with enough experience to have some some counsel or insight is kind of is kind of flattering, but uh, I've enjoyed the whole time. How has the league changed since uh, since you took over the mantle? Well, we uh, I think the fundamental things have changed. You know, we had ten teams, um, very stable in terms of um, uh, the number of teams, and, and you know we don't have a lot of franchise movement. Uh, um, so you know, really, there's only been one relocation since I since I arrived. And I Plan relocation to return a team to Rockland, which is uh, an original member of, of the league. So there's a team in Rockland again, and then we expanded um, uh, 13 years ago and then 11 years ago to Kempville and Carlton Place, and added two new teams. and And we really had targeted 12 teams, and we wanted there to be uh, teams in certain locations. And one of the first things I did when I started was, was set a bit of a an action plan on how that might, that might look in the next five to ten years. And so we able to achieve that. So that was a, a you know a change in terms of league composition. Um, I think some of the regulations that we deal with um, have made our league a little bit uh, more NCAA focused than it used to be. Hmm. So we certainly sent a lot more players to the NCAA than we than we had prior to that. Um, again, because we don't have the availability of younger roster players that we used to, um, just based on the on the rule changes that we've had. So that's that's the simple one. And then we've in the last years um some of our teams uh well not all of our all of our teams have had to define ways to supplement some of the rising expenses so there is a fee to play in our league it's it's a, a nominal amount based on the operating budget of the teams but but there's a fee to play and we return uh, uh guarantee a lot of deliverables and have a really specific set of guidelines in terms of what uh what fees cover and and uh make sure that everything is, is completely clear as far as uh what the fees are what they what they are paying for and uh, make sure the customer, in this case the player and the parent, are, are well aware of what the, uh, what the lay of the land is in terms of cost. A couple of Twitter questions that have come in that uh, kind of uh, touch on subjects you just uh, mentioned as well. Eric uh, wants to know about revisiting the exceptional status uh, rule for 15-year-olds. says many great players played as 15-year-olds uh, in the uh, Canadian Junior Hockey League. Is that every, anything that's ever been discussed? Well, if Ten leagues, the whole be ten to nothing in favor of that. I can assure you, um, it's not allowed. It's it's a, a regulation that we we deal with many regulations in our game, and one of them is that fifteen year old players can only apply for exceptional status if they uh, if they want to play in the Canadian Hockey League. So mm-hmm. uh, we, we we don't have access to that player based on the regulations, and, and uh, so you know there are many cases where you know in most in, in most years there are players. You know, I would say virtually every league. That would qualify as exception to the point where they could play to the junior A level. We probably had four, uh, in our backyard this year that were all first round engineer picks that easily could have played, uh, in our league and been regular players and been good contributors. Uh, and they all played as affiliates this year. Um, but, uh, you know, we, uh, we long for those days. And I think, uh, 
maybe that's something that will happen in the future. But that's more of a Hockey Canada thing? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, Tyler King, who's the voice of the Brooks Bandits, uh, has uh, submitted a question. He wants to know about uh, possible expansion to uh, Kingston. He says he's still mourning the loss of his beloved Vs. Well, as Tyler knows, I'm a Kingston native uh, and former coach of the Kingston Warriors back in the late 80s, early 90s. So uh challenging situation there for some that day for folks in Kingston. Uh, um, that that team uh, certainly was an important one in my, in my career as, as well as Tyler's. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I think it's unfortunate. I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly what, uh, what, what the plans uh, are with the OJHL. Um, they're not in our geographical footprint when it comes to the branch divisions, so that's not something that uh, is an option for us at this stage of the game. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if down the road there's another team uh, in Kingston, and uh, hopefully the OJHL has uh, a group that uh, is interested in something like that. Uh, back in 2017, you became the chairman of the entire Canadian Junior Hockey League. Uh, what's that? What has that role been like for you, and, and how is it different than being the commissioner of just your one league now that you're kind of overseeing uh, 10 CJHL leagues? Well, I, you know, I like the role of chairman at our league level, which typically is the uh, representing the uh, the ownership of each individual league. There's, you know, in our league, there's 12, 12 members, and then there's one of, amongst those 12 as and so I really feel it's the same thing. We have 10 leagues, and I'm honored to be nominated uh, by my peers as, as the chairman of the, of the 10. Uh, and really, I, I think I, I know, there's more of a liaison with Brent Lance, who's our president, and certainly uh, has a wealth of experience and knowledge. But sometimes it's always been kind of to, to balance And when there's certain situations that arise, you know, a lot of times you need Someone who shares, shares So that's really the, the primary function. I sit on as a result of that position, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm just one of ten, and, and uh, I'm happy to be the one that sort of ties things together when need be, and uh, and work closely with Brent. So I, I you know, my speak is not every day, every second day, and uh, keeping up to speed on things across the country is important. And I think. We have a really important relationship with Hockey Canada and a partnership agreement that, uh, that Brent and I uh, participated in in '84, and, and, and I've really enjoyed that. I think Hockey Canada has been a real advocate for junior A hockey in the last uh, few years, especially. But for a long time, I know that Scott Smith and Tom Rennie are, are strong supporters of our program. It's been appreciated by all ten. Now I know, uh, or at least I'm reading a story from that uh, that year in 2017. It said it was a two-year term that you would be the chairman. Uh, is that up, or where is that moving forward right now? Well, the concept was it was a two-year term, and then uh, there was some discussion this past AGM, and, and uh, the plan is for me to stay on for another year and sort of help uh, finish some of the projects uh, up and, and phase and transition in. It's on our schedule and in the. December, we'll, we'll make the decision as to who's going to succeed me, and, and uh, there'll be a bit of a transition. So I think, uh, I think you know, I guess every year there's a lot of things on the go that carry over. I think there's possibly there's going to be a significant number of items that that require a little bit of continuity, and and uh, I was happy to continue on for another year. Are you able to talk about any of those uh, things that are kind of uh, still in the works that haven't come to uh, fruition yet? Well, you know what, I, I don't know if there's anything really in the works. I think we've a few just hockey related matters that uh, as, as the season pro- 
progresses, you sort of run out of race track and things are going finalized. So, you know, our partnership agreement with Hockey Canada is an ongoing document. You know, it's there and, and uh, various tasks that Hockey Canada has, has, has started with us and uh, that I, I sit on and play a role on. So I think it's like some of those things can be sort of handed off. Um, and they, and they, they're relatively new concepts. Um, um, you know, to, to the hockey family structure. I think we, you know, we want to be important contributors. And I think, uh, being able to, to have some historical background and, and, uh, you know, some, some sort of corporate knowledge of what's going on for the last little bit is helpful rather than sort of insert something new into an existing committee. So that was really, um, you know, the key part of it. And I think, I think, you know, no, now knowing that there is an actual plan, we can probably better prepare for that. The two-year term was something that was discussed conceptually. It was never kind of determined that that's what it was, but that, I, I believe that's what it should be. Um, but going forward, I'm in year three, so there you go. But, uh, but no, I, I, nothing, nothing contentious and nothing confidential. I mean, it's just more of a, a case of getting kind of things uh, running smoothly if you can. Uh, I know at the major junior hockey level, there's more similarities between the three leagues than there are differences, but there are differences from league to league. I imagine it's the same with the 10 leagues across the, the CJHL. Uh, is it important to have, uh, synergy though? A lot of, you know, I don't know if e- each league has the same amount of, you know, 20 roles that are uh, allowed to play or, or what it is, but are there significant differences from league to league? Well, you touched on one that I think is something we, we discuss every time. It seems like we discuss it every time we get together. Um, uh, you know, the number of twenty-year-olds, and we, well, we've we've embarked on a, on a move from you know, to reduce the number down. You know, we we've played with six for a long time in our league, and there's a number of leagues that play with six. Um, and I think the leagues that are at nine and originally are now down to eight. I think some of them are voluntarily moving to seven. There, there there is some feeling that you know, moving down down to have a, a number that's the same across the board, and whether that number is six or not. Um, I, I think there's a, there's an appetite for that. I think that'll happen. I think yeah, they make it, you know, a little more voluntary than, than sort of, uh, fast forwarding it to, to, to six for everybody overnight. Um, so I, I think that's one area that I think you'll see become more similar. I, I really think the differences, um, that we have are, are just sort of philosophical and regional. Um, you know, we've got leagues that really serve as feeder, feeder leagues to, um, to the Canadian Hockey League. Serve really as a direct pipeline and affiliate program, and and uh, that's really their primary their primary player uh, pool, and, and that's the, the primary function. And then we've got leagues that that really have a, a priority when it comes to sending players to the NCAA. So right. you know, I think I think you know you can go across the country and see some leagues are sort of split, but for the most part, most leagues are one or the other. And I think you know our, you know, our league's a case where. You know, 90% of the kids that play in our league aspire to play in the NCAA, and you know, we still send some guys to major junior, but, but, uh, we used to have a younger athlete in our league that was 15 and 16 years old. Um, we don't have access to those kids anymore, so, so we've had to reinvent ourselves a bit. I think we're a lot like, um, BC and Alberta in that sense, where, you know, the, the primary focus is trying to move to collegiate levels. Um, and I think, you know, a number of the other provinces have Really strong relationships with the, uh, the Western Hockey League, like Saskatchewan, the Maritimes, and Quebec. And I think if you ask the guys in the Quebec League or in the uh, Manitoba League or on the Ontario League, I think they, they, they're, they're kind of in the middle. They, they do a little bit of both. And, you know, they're, they're 
everyone's trying to find their way, and I think we're all the same that way. But there's there's some significant differences there. As a result, the player that we have on rosters is different, different ages and different goals and different really different places in, in, in their own careers as players. So um, it's uh, it's a dynamic that I don't know that we could ever change to one or the other. I think we have to respect the fact that there's differences in in philosophies and there's differences in opinion. And, and uh, with that, you know, I think the good thing is the team needs to play a relatively balanced level in terms of level of competition. Um, you know, there's a, always leagues that are stronger and leagues that are weaker, but for the most part, the level of play is relatively consistent. Kevin, for those players who don't end up going to the NCAA or the few that go to the Canadian Hockey League, um, is there like a, a scholarship package or anything like that available for for those types of players, or or is there any sort of compensation for what comes after their junior career? Uh, I'd say nationally, no. Uh, we you know we, we offer bursaries for, bursaries for award winners, but there's no real program that here's some money to, to for education at, at the national level. Right. I, I do know that in our, in our league, um, you know, we've really focused on. Little, we have two league uh, academic advisors. So one of the things that they do is really work closely with the team advisors to ensure that our graduating players have have destinations. And I think, you know, we're we're in the high ninety percentile when it comes to where our twenty year old players play at, at twenty one. And uh, we have the odd case of player where you know they, they they've determined that you know their hockey is going to end at twenty, uh, but it's very very rare. Um, for the most part. You know, the players in our league, when they play at 20, they're playing either in the CIS or the NCAA at the Division One or Division Three level um, after they exit uh, and graduate from junior hockey. So we've made that a priority as a league that we don't have a lot of kids that view this as their last place of playing. And um, that might that might cost us a player or two, but I think it's important for, for kids to be in an environment where there's, there's always, a, you know, a next level and a next step. And I think that's one of the things that, Philosophically, certainly, reason. And I think you know most leagues have share that view, but uh, but there's nothing when it comes to specific you know, financial incentives or, or or bursaries that are available across the board. Okay. Now, when it comes to uh, getting players on specific teams, uh, I know some leagues have a draft. Other, I think most of the leagues are based on recruitment, aren't they? So, um, how do you ensure that uh, everything's above board and nobody's Kind of uh, going around corners or cutting corners or offering things that aren't allowed. What is allowed? Uh, you know, if you're trying to entice a player from a state side and you're competing with a team out of the BCHL or the AJHL to get that player's rights, what's allowed as an incentive and what's not? Where do you draw the line? Um, well, I think, you know, the rules are, are relatively clear in the CJHL. You know, you, you're not allowed to pay players and, and, uh, you know, that's, that's a violation of both CJHL and NCAA regulations, I think. No, I, I really think that we've, we've uh, minimized cases where that's where that's happened. Now, I could be the most naive guy around, but I, I believe that would be true. Um, you know, I think for the most part, the programs that are enticing players um, from outside our our, you know, our particular backyards are are doing so because those players have aspirations to move on to collegiate hockey in most cases, and because the the eligibility requirements. I don't think anybody wants to jeopardize that. So, so I don't think there's a lot of that issue. I, I think that, you know, some leagues have drafts, but they tend to be localized uh, drafts. In the case of our league, we have a phantom draft that essentially is just for our branch players, our regional kids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, those kids play in our UNT programs and then we'll graduate and move up to our junior A or junior B programs. So 
I, you know, there, there's no real draft of, of, you know, widespread free agency. I think it's, uh, it's unusual for us in, in Canada to see drafts, um, where players are being drafted from parallel levels and higher levels. It really doesn't make sense to us. We're, we're conditioned to see a draft as a place where our younger players are introduced to a higher level. And so the leagues in Canada that have drafts, um, follow that model. Um, so I think that's where there may be some, uh, in, in North America, certainly some differences in, in terms of what a draft is, but, uh, but as, you know, player benefits go, I think, you know, the junior experience is something that we try to make consistent in our league. And I think that most leagues do the same. You know, you're, you're in most cases, you're, you're, you're living somewhat close to home, but a lot of kids have to move away. There's building and then there's, you know, adjusting to these social circles and, 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 and school and things like that. Uh, that whole junior experience is, is an important element of player development. I think that's where, you know, we're, we're a lot alike. We want, to, we want the players to have a good experience and we want them to develop and we want them to get better. And I think, uh, you know, whether we have to entice the odd player with, uh, you know, uh, uh, a better brand of hockey stick than uh, the competition, you know, that, that's, that's part of, I think, uh, the nature of, of recruitment. But I think, you know, players are enticed by programs and good leagues. And if you've got a good program, you've done a good job with player advancement, then I think you're going to be a destination for more players. All right, Kevin Abrams, uh, the commissioner of the CCHL, my guest here on the Pipeline Show. Just a few more questions for you. This one's come in uh, via Twitter from Brian, who wants to know about the ranking system for the CGHL. He says uh, currently he feels it's purely based on winning percentage, but as you said earlier, Kevin, uh, from league to league, quality of the league might be different. Could you ever foresee uh, going to more of an NCAA like the pairwise ranking and, and things like that, which is based more on the quality of competition that each team is facing? Well, I, you know, I, I, I think our ranking system certainly does one thing, and it, it, it is it creates discussion. Yep. So if, if that's the objective, then you know it's it's been well achieved. Um, to be honest, I think you know whenever you have a ranking system, uh, it's really open to that are participating in the, in the rankings to, to determine how they do it. It would appear to be that the, uh, you know, and I don't know that this to, this to be true, but it would appear that winning percentage is uh, an important element to uh, to how the, the current rankings are, are done. And if that's the case, then that's, you know, I think that's justifiable. They've determined it. It certainly doesn't mean that the top five team, uh, ranked teams uh, nationally are going to be the five teams at the national championship. So you know that. I, I think it's a source of discussion and, and sometimes complaint, then I guess, you know, that's okay. Um, you know, I, I know the teams are proud when they're on the list and they're high on the list. Mm-hmm. And I know when they're not on the list, they would say that the list has less merit and that they'll show them and, and that it's almost a motivation. But I, I can tell you as a, as a weakness, I, I find it interesting. I'm, I'm appreciative of the guys that do the work to put it in, but I, I certainly don't consider uh, the success or failure of, of, of a league or team um, is based on the ranking system. I think those 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 decisions are reached, uh, you know, in, in April and May when teams are on the ice. But uh, it does get people it does get people talking. There's no question with that. Could you ever foresee the league, uh, the CJHL, moving uh, away from the current uh, the, the National Junior uh, A Championship, uh, used to be the RBC Cup, uh, going away from that style? To a 16-team national tournament, much like the NCAA, where you could have 
three or four teams from the BCHL and two or three from the AJ and two or three from your league, but the, the weaker leagues might only have one representative. Uh, but so you'd have the, the true 16 best teams uh, in the country as opposed to what the current system, some would argue is a bit flawed. You know what? That, that, that is an interesting concept. And, um, I, I personally think that has, uh, I don't know whether my colleagues would share that view. Um, I, I, I think that, um, we all have to really look at why the, the system was created to be the way it is. And I think what it was done originally to do is, is to shorten, um, uh, like to, to lengthen the playing seasons and allow longer periods of play in, in league level playoffs. And then, you know, in the East certainly, and I think for a while in the West with the Western Championship, the idea was, you know, have a tournament that, that didn't require a whole bunch of extra series that eats away at dates, you know, and, and eats away at the calendar. Um, having said that, I, you know, I think, I think there's some real merit to review, um, like really how, how important the, uh, the regional playoffs are. I know that when there's a series, there's, there tends to be a terrific follow, but there's a real lack of understanding as to what, the, you know, what the point of, of that series is. I know, you know, if Alberta's playing BC, for example, both teams have already won the league championship. And I, and I don't know that, you know, another series feels like you've won or lost another championship. I think that's just a qualifying process to get to the, the nationals. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, so maybe, you know, maybe part of the discussion would be, is there, is, you know, do the 10 league champions, um, play in a, in a, almost like a Telus type tournament where there's larger numbers of teams, but maybe, you know, you, you lose more quickly. Maybe it's a, an NCAA knockout kind of event where, you know, you, you lose on Friday night and you go home. Yep. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. And, and maybe, you know what, if you had 10 teams and you had six yep. wild cards based on something else, that's how you get to that. I don't think it would be a bad discussion. I would say 16 teams and just have knockouts. And, you know, you have a regional knockout, knockout, you lose, you're gone. Because yep. I think what, what matters most is is when you play in your league championship, there's no better hockey than a league final. And I think, you know, you can see that in those in BC or Alberta or Maritimes or Quebec or my league. You know, that, that series for the league championship where kids have played 60 games and battled and, and competed – you know, when you win that championship, you're a champion. And, and, uh, sometimes when you go to regionals and nationals, um, you, you've already won what, what is really the most important thing. And it's and, and certainly not to say that winning a national championship isn't an unbelievable achievement. It really is. Mm-hmm. But may, maybe the path to get there could be a little different. Oh, I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, that's uh, exactly the way I view it. And getting back to the, the 16 team tournament, I, that would be my proposal would be to have the 10 sh- league champions and the next six best teams. And that kind of goes to what the Twitter question was about, about having a better ranking system based on quality of competition. So you would actually have the, you'd know who the next six best teams are uh, based on the, the records they've had against the higher competition. Uh, I, I really like that yep. idea. I've kind of been putting that out there for the last number of years. So I'm glad that uh, that you you would at least consider it uh, moving forward. Um, last uh, subject I wanted to, to approach with you was uh, the uh, you're aware of the, the lawsuit facing the Canadian Hockey League, the Major Junior Hockey League, uh, with some former players seeking minimum wage. Uh, how would or how could that affect amateur sport across Canada, uh, including the CJHL? Do you have any concerns about it? No, not not really. I mean, I'm certainly oh, observing that with interest. Um, you know, I think I think the the athlete that plays in the CJHL is 
is at a different level than the athlete that plays in the Canadian League. And, and um, you know, I, I don't know whether the hinging of that argument is based on the fact that they get a nominal, you know, stipend for for expenses or whether, you know, I, I, I don't know what, what it is or whether it's because players are, have already signed national league contracts. I don't know what part of it makes it, um, makes it different. Um, you know, I, I think when you, when you play amateur hockey, you know, there's never, there's never an assumption that you should be getting paid to do so. And, you know, I think particularly some leagues where there's a, a small fee to play on the team, um, you know, that, that's sort of is the opposite. Um, you know, I, I think I, you know, I, I understand the argument. I do. I, I just don't, I, you know, I, I don't know how much merit there is at our level for it to be a concern, but, uh, you still, you still pay attention. And, 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 you know, I, I think, uh, I think those are challenging situations for the Canadian Hockey League. And I, you know, I know there's a lot of great operators in that league and, and uh, for all the right reasons. So it's, it's, it's difficult for everybody for sure. Well, the reason I asked the question is because part of the lawsuit is, is based on uh, the time that the players spend on, you know, not just uh, playing hockey, but time on the bus and uh, going to schools or hospital visits or things like that. And I know players in, in your, across the CJHL, they also go to schools and do read in week and, and things like that and community service. And if the players in the CHL would start being paid minimum wage and you get paid for that, then wouldn't that trickle down to your league because the players who go to the schools, wouldn't that be the same thing? Yeah, I, I've never, I, you know, I coached for a long time. I never viewed those things for the, for the players as a job. I, you know, I, I always thought it was part of being a, a good citizen and a good member of a community. And, and uh, I think those are important traits for young people to learn. Um, you know, I, I don't. I don't liken that to to a job. I, I think, you know, I think those are whether they're mandatory because it's part of a team building process or, or not. I don't know. I guess that could be an argument, but you know, I I, I don't view those things as things that you know, I'm only going to this school to to read to these kids because I'm going to get paid fourteen dollars an hour. I I like to think that our our players, you know, are, are are doing it for for the right reasons because maybe somebody did that for them when they were in that position and, and they remembered it. So I think I think. You know, I think as a society, we need to maybe take a deep breath of it and, and say some people just do things because they're good things. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that everything should be payable. And I don't think everything should be um, mandated as, as part of an employment contract. I think sometimes you do things because it's good for the game and it's good for your community. And, and uh, you know, things like that are important things for, for, for young people to, to experience. Excellent. Kevin, uh, before I let you go, what's on the agenda for the offseason uh, for you, uh, whether it's business-wise or uh, what do you like to do away from the game? Well, you know, I, um, I, I, uh, I, I normally enjoy uh, the summertime. I live uh, in the upper Ottawa Valley and uh, had some extreme flooding where I live, so oh. it won't be a typical summer for us, but uh, but we'll, we'll get back to enjoying some time in July and, and uh, spend some time with friends and family and you know the the off season is extremely short in our game. I think for the people that that uh, are involved, they know that you get a chance to sort of take a bit of a uh, a break um, right about now. And uh, by the time the end of July rolls around, everyone's looking at their calendars and they start to fill up with meetings and camps and all sorts of things. So uh, the next month, we'll just do some relaxing and spend some time with my family and friends. And uh, but uh, as you know already, uh, my my cell phone's always on, so I, I'm always available. <laughs> Excellent. Kevin, I really appreciate your time. I hope we can chat again. You bet. Thanks so much. 
There is Kevin Abrams, the uh, commissioner of the CCHL and chairman of the Canadian Junior Hockey League, uh, overseeing all 10 of the uh, Tier 1 Junior A leagues in Canada. Lots of ground that we covered there. Uh, Really interested to hear your uh, feedback, your thoughts on everything that you heard there with uh, and from Kevin. You can reach me uh, on Twitter at TPS underscore Guy. Over the next uh, few weeks, uh, Ron Robinson of the WHL coming up. Gilles Courteau of the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. I've reached out to the OHL to try to get David Branch on once again. Uh, Tom Garrity from the USHL. And uh, we'll look to the NAHL as well. Maybe there's another league that you'd like me to zero in on. You can let me know. Send me a note at, on Twitter at TPS underscore Guy. Uh, only one more segment on the show this week. It's uh, already been a long, lengthy show here for the offseason. But uh, big news out of the NCAA the WCHA basically falling apart over the next couple of years. Jimmy Connolly from USCHO will tell us all about it next here on the Pipeline Show. Pashnuk with a fake shot, and he goes the other way, spinning a couple more spins, two or three of them. Princeton Pashnuk. Pashnuk with a shot. He scores! Far down! Princeton Pashnuk! Are you serious? Hey, it's Princeton Pashnuk from the Arizona State Sun Devils, and you're listening to the Pipeline Show. NCAA Hockey offers all that and its players graduate at a 90% rate. Nick Bukestad. Backhand scores! Wow, what a goal! David Backus. And Zach Parisi were stars on campus before the NHL stage. Whether you are a fan or a player, nothing compares to college hockey. Visit collegehockeyinc.com and follow at College Hockey. Champions of the college hockey world! You're listening to the Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. I think I'm getting the black lung pop. Back on the Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming, and uh, some big news coming out of college hockey over the the last uh, few days. And uh, whenever something big like that happens, we have to call on Jimmy Conley from USCHO. Jimmy, welcome back to the Pipeline Show. Uh, and the big news here in the off season is uh, the WCHA is uh, boy. A couple of years from now, might not even exist. It certainly won't look like uh, what we've come to know of the WCHA. What's happened? Yeah, I mean, you've, you've nailed it right in the head. I don't think that we're going to see a WCHA three years from now. Uh, seven of their members, um, and that includes, uh, it's probably easier to say the schools that doesn't include basically the two Alaskas and Alabama Huntsville, but that, but that leaves you with Minnesota State, Bemidji, Lake Superior, Ferris State, Northern Michigan, Michigan Tech, and I'm probably leaving one out that, you know, just <laughs> easier. Like I Lake said, Superior? Lake yeah. Superior. So all of those seven schools have decided to form their own conference. And you know, there's a lot of good reasons behind it for those schools, um, but there's a lot of reasons that kind of make college hockey once again maybe look very selfish, very self-serving. You know, if it's not good for you, it's not good for anybody in, in some of these schools' opinions. I'm not trying to hammer them much because you have to do what's right financially for your institution. But it's obvious, it's quite obvious to me that these seven schools are trying to uh, eliminate the costs associated with traveling to Alaska, yeah. uh, which is at least once a year for these schools. And then Alabama Huntsville, that's not an easy trip for them either. Geographically, this WCHA, and don't forget, this league 
really was the leftovers, if you will, from when the NCHC and Big Ten formed themselves. Yeah. So these were the leftover schools. They didn't fit great geographically. They tried to make a go of it. Um, but at this point, these seven schools know that they're going to move. Uh, I don't believe, and I said this on my own podcast uh, on Saturday, I, I don't believe that when this league actually starts up play, which will probably be three seasons from now, I don't believe it's going to look anything like it does with these seven teams right now. There's a chance that you could see both Bemidji and Minnesota State uh, trying to petition the NCHC to join that league. Maybe it becomes a trade where you send Ohio, I'm sorry, Miami, Ohio and uh, Bowling Green into this new league. Um, there's possibilities that some teams from Atlanta hockey could move over. There's so much speculation that's going to go on with this. Uh, and right now, I just don't feel there's there, there. It was done very quickly. And, and I think that there, I don't want to say there's a lack of thought, but it, it feels like it was done a little more haphazardly than say, when you go back to when the NCAC formed uh, five or six years ago and how thoughtful that process was and how much uh, behind the scenes work that took this one. I know that there was some meetings held between these schools, maybe some other schools that didn't get pulled along with them. Um, but I think timing wise, they had to start with an announcement that would get a, a clock started on what is a 25 month window between the time they can make an announcement and the time they leave the WCHA. There would be financial penalties involved if they didn't start that clock and do it right. So that's a big part of why this was done um, at this time. But uh, I, like I said, I just don't think that when this league starts playing hockey, it's going to look anything like uh, the league that we maybe are envisioning with these seven teams right now. Well, I know the future of uh, both schools in Alaska was kind of in question here the last two or three seasons uh, because of uh, other financial cost cutting that the, those the schools were uh, undergoing. Uh, I know the uh, the chancellor for Alaska Fairbanks, Dan White, is quoted in a story at uscho.com right now that uh, he's kind of he was a bit surprised by this. Yet I, I've talked to enough people and seen reaction on on social media that maybe this was foreseeable that it was coming. Um, so should they really be shocked? No. I don't. I I don't think that they should. Um, if they're if they're trying to say that there was no indication that this was happening, I, I think that that means they've turned a blind, blind eye for too long. Um, you know, obviously their own stability as a program, two programs, uh, both in Alaska, uh, Fairbanks and Anchorage. You know, both of those programs not on the greatest financial ground. We've heard a lot about that, mm-hmm. um, but. You know, in reality, I, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't consider myself back rate of an insider and I had heard rumblings of this back in January and had talked to enough people that this was going to happen sometime soon. Maybe it wasn't going to happen the way it did. And I mean, by the teams that are involved, I didn't hear all of those names. I thought they might be more left of the WCHA than, you know, basically three teams. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, if you're a chancellor or a president or an athletic director in, at one of the two Alaska schools in particular, I, I don't know Huntsville, that, that's kind of unfair because they've done a, a good job of trying to stay the course. They're, they're going to build a new arena there. You know, they'll, they'll have a future home. But I feel like this has the potential to be a death sentence for the two Alaska schools. Yeah. Um, and to not be able to see that coming, I would just say that, you know, so to say that you're not, you didn't see that coming doesn't seem uh, totally uh, genuine. I think that, 
there was probably some handwriting on this wall that had to be right. I couldn't believe that either of those schools wouldn't have known that this was a, a quite a possibility. Yeah, the quote is, UAF was not notified in advance of this decision, nor are we alerted to the preparation of such action. So I can, so I can, I can believe that, that they weren't told, and maybe they didn't know the 17th had been meeting for months behind their backs. Sure. But you have to assume that when you're, you know, you're a minimum of a seven-hour plane ride from any of those schools, maybe even more. I'm not exactly sure. It's been a long time since I've taken that trip. But you're a long plane ride away from them. You're obviously showing not the best financial records uh, as a university system. And if if you followed on Friday, I believe that the same day that this announcement came out, uh, the University of Alaska system uh, talked about potential budget cuts that exceeded $100 million, mm. much of which could affect athletics. So they weren't in the greatest position. All that said, and I, I, I want to say this and, and kind of underscore, I am not for contraction in college hockey, no matter what shape or program's in. You can always find a way to save a college hockey program, but it takes a lot of people working together. Um, and talking with some folks after this announcement was made, including Morris Kurtz, whose firm did the consulting and, and handled the announcement, and he said, you know, it's, it might be just time that if we're going to talk about Alaska and the future of a hockey in Alaska, that it's 60 teams talking about it, not seven. Right. And, you know, he's, you know, that I think was kind of a direct shot at the fact that a lot of what has been done has fallen onto the laps of the, the remaining teams in the WCHA. And I think these schools just realized they needed to get themselves away from it. Well, for the next two years, everything stays the same. The uh, the changes will be uh, three years from now or three seasons from now. So I'm sure the next two years will be uh, pretty interesting when those teams all cross paths with the, with each other. Now, you've already said you think this could be the end for uh, both Alaska programs. Do you think Alabama-Huntsville maybe just goes uh, independent for a little while? I mean, it geographically, it's, a, it's a, a bit of an outlier, just like Arizona State is, and it's worked so far for the Sun Devils or – do you think there is a, a conference that would take them back? Um, I think that there's always possibility for a school like Huntsville, you know, good track record. Granted, a lot of it was at the Division II level, but, uh, you know, they're, they've committed money to build an arena, which I think is a big step for their program. Um, and I, I've always felt that that's a more involved school. And I, I think maybe that's unfair because maybe I'm not as in touch with the Alaska schools as, as, as I should be. And I maybe know a little bit more about the, the school, you know, at Huntsville, and I, I just feel like they are just more in touch with what's going on in terms of what it takes to put a competitive program on the ice. They had some great games down the stretch, if you remember this season, uh, in the WCHA. We're one of the tougher teams at, at points. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I, I don't see them just fading away. They're a team that will be maybe considered by a, a league like Atlanta hockey. If Atlanta hockey would lose a member to this new conference, maybe they get pulled in. Potentially these seven teams maybe go back and say, hey, sorry, we didn't mean to screw you over this whole thing, but you know, do you want to play with our conference? And maybe they find a way to put it all back together. Mm-hmm. Um, they just don't, they're not the same financial burden that is the Alaska schools. That is a very expensive trip for these schools. It's a, you know, there's a lot of money that has to be put out. And I know there's some subsidies and all of that sort of stuff to, to cover some of it, but you can't cover, you know, basically a plane ticket every single year for every one of these other eight schools to fly to Alaska, whether it's Anchorage or Fairbanks. That's a, that's a lot. And listen, 
I also understand that Anchorage and Fairbanks had some huge, you know, bills that they had to put forward. They needed to raise money. They needed to find budget just to keep these programs operating. That's a big struggle as well. So going back to your question, though, I, I think that uh, Huntsville is a safer bet to to be able to uh, keep their program afloat, keep going. Um, but it's, it's not a situation that any of these three schools wanted to be in. Speaking of Arizona State, I mentioned them a little while ago. Any changes with them, or are they content just being an independent? Well, I think they showed this year that they can be very competitive as an independent program. And, yeah. you know, we have to think that I, you and I have talked about the pairwise many times in the past. And one of the big advantages, and I, there's not a lot of them, but one of the big advantages to being an, an independent team is that you get to basically schedule an entire co- schedule of non-conference games. And, you know, you look at a team in Hockey East, uh, by the time they do it, I believe they end up with eight non-conference games. Big Ten teams, I think, have 12. Some teams, some leagues have 10. Ivy League teams, I think, have seven. You know, so you are basically dependent on your league to be strong. And if it's not, then you kind of go to the mercy of your league uh, and, and maybe fall apart in many ways because of the fact that your league wasn't strong. And no matter what you did in the non-conference world, there wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Arizona State doesn't have to worry about that. Now they do have to hope that the teams that they schedule and the teams that they play will be competitive. They put the schedule this year together three years ago, and who knew some of the teams that were on their schedule ended up being very good teams and and helped their pairwise and boosted them up. And the fact that they were able to you know put together is north of twenty four wins you know in that regular season schedule, maybe twenty four and ten I think was their record or something like that. That was enough to get them into the tournament. When If they do get into a conference, maybe they lose that advantage. And that's one of the things I'm sure they'll consider. I have heard, and I know you and I talked a little bit about it uh, over text message, that the, the school itself, Arizona State, has some interest in Hockey East, which sounds crazy. You couldn't yep. get a further conference away, possibly. But you get, for Arizona State, every game is a plane flight. They cannot drive to a single opponent anywhere in the United States. So they're hopping on a plane no matter what. Nothing better than knowing that most of your opponents are up in the greater Boston area. There's a non-stop flight from Arizona number of times a day that goes right up into Bogan Airport. Teams that come into them, they fly in. The campus is about seven minutes away from the, the Phoenix airport. So it's it's convenient on both ends. All that said, don't forget that Notre Dame was kind of the, the failed experiment in this. And when Hockey East added them, they thought that it would be pretty easy. Unfortunately, you know, Notre Dame looked at it. They were doing all the travel and the other teams weren't, and they didn't feel that they had a competitive advantage. They bailed. They go to the Big Ten. So I think that coaches in general would like to have an Arizona State and the Hockey East coaches, that is. Uh, their athletic directors, their presidents, and those are the decision makers, maybe not as much because of the fact that they've seen this not work with Notre Dame. But the difference between Notre Dame and Arizona State when you talk about the travel is measurable. You're talking about flying to Chicago and driving an hour and a half in the wintertime, the number of teams that got snowed in there. It's not, if you've ever traveled through Chicago in January and February, it's not usually an easy flight. It's almost never on time, and the number of times it gets canceled is, is ridiculous. So that's one of those things that I think that those teams looked at it just the way Notre Dame did. Was, this travel is awful. And Notre Dame, don't forget, was you know, traveling via private plane most of the time. These other schools, some of them, most of them were traveling commercial. With Arizona State, that travel is 
that those hassles should be nullified a little bit because of the fact that you're going to a good climate, weather shouldn't affect you as much. Maybe weather in Boston affects you or whatever, any New England airport affects you, but it shouldn't be as hard. I think it, it could be a good potential fit. The money that Arizona State puts behind their athletic program fits with hockey. East. Uh, most of the schools there invest, you know, great numbers of great amount of money. The only other league I look at as being as good of a fit might be the Big Ten. Um, but for that, there's an issue probably on the Big Ten side on where academic, uh, where I'm sorry, Arizona State ranks academically. And they tend to favor research institutions, and Arizona State is not considered a research institution. So there's, there's a lot in play, but I think it, it, when you look at conferences, the only two that really are good fits from every uh, possible angle, maybe take the travel off because of the distance and time zones, but I think Hockey East and the Big Ten are the only two potentials for Arizona State. Why not the NCHC? Well, you just I, I don't think that the programs align. When you look at those schools, they, they are obviously great hockey programs, but the budgets of the athletic programs, the size of the schools don't really match up. You know, a lot you know, not a lot of not all of them are state schools and, and not that hockey east is all state schools either. Um, but you know, I think the state school mentality and just knowing that you have you know, don't forget this is you know, one of the largest universities in the United States, Arizona State, in terms of their student population. Right. Uh, most of those schools in the NCAC, a little bit smaller. Um, it could be a possible mix, but they didn't seem interested when the first exploration was done between the, the conference and Arizona State. They, they, you know, came straight out and said, not the right fit for us at this time. Maybe we'll look at it down the road, but probably not the right fit. I don't see anything that has changed in terms of what the NCAC is. They haven't gone out and found some bigger schools to be members. So I just don't feel like it's as much of a fit as, say, Hockey East or the Big Ten could be. Anything else happening in the offseason? I know, obviously, there'll be coaching changes and announcements and, and things like that, but anything else of significance to touch on? Well, I think that the you know college hockey has to feel pretty good coming out of the draft. Uh, it was an excellent draft. Uh, a lot of kids taken first round, nine total, and then most of those were taken in the top 15, which is a nice little – uh, feathering the cap for college hockey. Overall, I think it was the most kids that have been taken in 12 years, uh, you know, rounds one through seven. So I think that that's a good positive for college hockey. Um, you know, there's other things to be always keeping, uh, near to the ground. One of the big things is that recruiting has changed in the college game. Uh, as of, I think it was June 1st, uh, coaches cannot contact a high school player until they have begun their junior year. So, the days of, you know, a player being signed when they're in eighth grade or ninth grade before they even get to high school won't happen anymore. And I think that's probably, a, I know people are going to say that it might not be the greatest thing because you have, you know, major junior trying to get some commitments out of these kids at an earlier age. But I think if a kid has any focus on college, it's good for both the college and the player that you're not going out and trying to get a commitment when you can't get one at age 13, then it becomes a verbal commitment. Then the kid changes his destination seven times before he gets to college. We, we all know the stories of those. So I think that that is a, another really good positive step for, for college hockey. And I think uh, we'll see how it goes in the first three to four years. And I'm sure there'll be a, a lot of assistant coaches that have, strong opinions because their job either just got a lot easier or a lot harder. Um, but I think, I think overall that is a good 
positive direction for college hockey. Jimmy, as always, great to catch up with you once again and uh, enjoy the uh, the rest of summer. We'll uh, we'll chat in early fall. Thanks, Key, and a uh, happy Canada Day to all the wonderful Canadians listening up there above the border. Well, right back at you, July 4th, right around the corner as well. Thank you. Jimmy Connolly from USCHO uh, knocking it out of the park, as always, when he's on the program. It's going to be really interesting to see how that scenario in- unfolds over the next uh, two to three years. And, you know, by then we might be talking about uh, one or two more new Division One teams uh, coming in. And I'm with Jimmy. I don't like uh, contraction, um, but if it's a shifting, you know, where you get you lose two teams, but you're gaining two new teams uh, and it's a soft. Uh, well, that's different, but we'll see how it uh, unfolds. I, I would feel bad for fans up in Alaska for of uh, either the Seawolves or the Nanooks, but it is geographically such a big hurdle for them to get over, and I understand the expenses. Tough one. No easy solutions there for those two uh, programs, uh, and we'll see what happens with the uh, Chargers, too, uh, out of the University of Alabama-Huntsville. That's it for this week's episode. Coming up next week, going to hear from... Uh, WHL Commissioner Ron Robison will cover off uh, all the things happening around the WHL this offseason, uh, what's on the checklist of things to do uh, for Ron Robison and the uh, the WHL going into a year where, again, the league is hosting the Memorial Cup. No TV package uh, last year outside of a regional one in Saskatchewan. We'll see if they're going to be changing the uh, online in terms of uh, watching games online uh, to match more the uh, the cost of doing so uh, to what the American Hockey League had last year. And any of your questions as well, you can fire those off to me. Send me your questions for Ron Robison at TPS underscore Guy on Twitter, or you can uh, email them to me, Guy at com. Not sure just yet what else will be on uh, next week's show. Obviously, uh, it's Canada Day here, whether you're listening to it late Sunday night or on Monday. Happy Canada Day to everybody uh, in uh, this country. And July 4th is uh, coming up right around the corner as well. So happy July 4th to uh, all our American listeners. In the meantime, get out and enjoy some summer as well. And maybe take the Pipeline Show uh, as your uh, podcast in your uh, vehicle, as you drive out to the lake or the campsite or whatever you're doing this summer. I hope you enjoy it, but I hope you'll be uh, tuning in for each episode as well. The next one coming up in about uh, five or six days. Until then, my name is Keith Flaming. See ya.